you would, uh, you can turn in your Bibles to uh, page 55, or the sermon text is actually an insert. It's kind of lengthy. Sorry about that. Um, But we're going to read through it uh, together and then study it this morning. So today we're going to read and meditate upon a very well-known story in the Bible. Even if you're not raised with a Christian background, most likely you will know the story of uh, Moses parting the Red Sea. But as I read this morning, I ask you to treat it with new, new eyes and new ears. God wants us to see some things about himself that would be good for us to know and also to remember. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 through all of uh, chapter 14. You guys ready? All right. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them all. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped by the sea at Piharath, in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. For the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, 
Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before his host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of, Israel, of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went up into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in a pillar of fire and of a cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and withdrew the Egyptian forces into a panic and threw them into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word before us. In so many ways, it stretches us. Um, it gives us questions that we have. We pray that in this hour, uh, you would meet us where we are, that you would humble us, you would show us your glory, that we may know you more and more rightly and honor you in our lives, we pray. Amen. We're prone to forget, aren't we? Something big happens in our lives that, that changes us forever, but then as time goes by, we, we forget. In our passage, we see the Israelites live through a powerful, life-changing event, none like it on earth, one that caused them to see God's glory on full display as he, as he orchestrated this, this miraculous rescue of his people. Now, you'd think that they would never forget, right? You would think that the coming chapters in the book of Exodus would be just one triumphant story after another of how God's people lived with great joy and devotion and love for the Lord and how they walked triumphantly into the promised land with, with great hope. But that's not the case. Within days, they start crying and complaining to go back to Egypt. 
Even in our passage, we saw that. How quickly they forget. So too you and me, right? When times are going good for us, we tend to forget the Lord and live for our own petty purposes. And when times get tough for us, we can complain to the Lord as, as if he's forgotten us. Do you, do you see this pattern in your life? Here's what we're going to see this morning. No matter what befalls us, we must not forget the Lord. Our passage teaches us these three important truths. We must remember the Lord is faithful. We must remember the Lord is passionate. And we must remember the Lord is merciful. First, we must remember the Lord is faithful. Now, this first point has three subpoints, the first of which being this. Because the Lord is faithful, we must trust in his wisdom. Have you ever found yourself in a difficult situation and your mind begins racing? Why is this happening, Lord? Is there not a simpler way for me? Did you know there was a simpler route to Egypt? If they would have taken the short route through Philistine territory, it would only have taken them two weeks to get there instead of 40 years. Why didn't they take the shortcut? Because of God's wisdom. We see in chapter 13, verse 17, we read, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, though that was near. Why? For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. God knew his people would turn back at the first sign of trouble, so he takes them on a much longer route. My friends, sometimes God takes us on a longer, seemingly meaningless journey for our own good. He sees what would happen to us if we were to take the simpler route. Does your theology have room for such truth? Does your walk with the Lord have room for such truth? One person who experienced the long route was Jacob's son, Joseph. Yes, the one with the coat of many colors. Over 400 years before what we read today, 400 years before the Exodus, Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. Think, imagine that. Talk about a long route around. Decades later, Joseph became the most powerful person in all of Egypt next to Pharaoh. And then there was a drought uh, back in the homeland, and his brothers came to him, not knowing it was Joseph in charge. They came because, to buy food because they were dying of starvation. Over the years, Joseph had grown to understand God's wisdom. He came to understand that God allowed Joseph to suffer so that later the starving nation of God's people would be saved through his own actions. When his brother stood before Joseph, he spoke to them of God's wisdom. We read it, Grayson read it earlier. He said, listen, he says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We must trust in God's wisdom. Also, because the Lord is faithful, we must rest in his promises. 
God had promised Joseph that his offspring would one day depart the land and they would take his bones back to the promised land. And we see this promise fulfilled in verse 19 where we read that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him into the promised land. Now, it might seem like a small promise to have your bones carried back to some land long after you die, but it tells us something, that God is faithful to keep his promises large or small. This should have been a sign to the nation that Yahweh, the Lord, is faithful to keep his promises. Therefore, they should trust in him, even in this horrible circumstance. Now, are you one who rests in the promises of God? Do you trust him, even when life's circumstances seem far from ideal? The third point regarding God's faithfulness is this. Because the Lord is faithful, we must journey in his presence. God is not a distant God. No, he's, he's up close and he's present with his people. And so we're to, the picture we see is that we're to journey in God's presence. We see this in verse 21 where the Lord went up before them by day in a pillar of cloud. And by night it was a pillar of fire to light their travel by day and by night. God is so good to his people He wants them to know and to experience his presence in their lives. I am here with you. God is not distant from his people. And so for days on end, as they wandered through the wilderness, they would recognize that God is there, guiding them, leading his people. Talk about a comfort. God's presence brings comfort. But check this out, Christian. God has given... um, presence to his, his people that is far greater than what we see in the Old Testament. The night before Jesus died, before he went to the cross, he promised his followers that he would not leave them as orphans. And he said what? He says, I'm going to come to you, but not him personally, but through the Holy Spirit. God says, Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he won't just be with you, but he will be what? In you. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the counselor, the the comforter. This is far greater experience than what the Old Testament people of God experienced. Yes, God by his Holy Spirit was present with his people in the Old Testament era, but only occasionally did God by his Holy Spirit dwell in a particular person, usually a, a prophet or a king. And then it was only temporarily as God's work was being done. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, God himself, dwells in his people, in each and every one. If you've trusted in Christ, that promise is yours. Paul wrote of this work in Colossians 1, verse 27, where he said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit is a deposit in us saying that that future glory that God is going to bring will one day truly be yours. How can you trust that? Because God is with you. He's placed his spirit in you. It's a deposit of that day to come. Remember, my friends, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Even when you feel left or forsaken, Christ is there with you. Some of you need to hear that this morning and believe that and remember that. So we must remember that the Lord is faithful. We must trust in his wisdom. We must rest in his promises. We must journey by his presence. That's the first point. The second point is this. We must remember that the Lord is passionate. 
One of the misconceptions people can have about God is that he's up in heaven twiddling his thumbs or, or he's up there playing solitaire, you know. Or since he's a trinity, maybe words with friends, right? That God is oblivious to what's going on here on earth. You know, I don't know how you could read the Bible and come to that conclusion. God is not detached from his creation. He is a passionate God. Just look at what we see at the beginning of, of beginning, beginning verses of chapter 14. We see that God is up to something. He's involved. He's intimate. We, we see God has his people backtrack. They had moved on, and then all of a sudden, God's like, well, actually, why don't you go back to where you were? I mean... When I go on travel with my, with, my, with my family when I was younger, it was like, you know, we knew and we had to like, we had to do a U-turn off the highway and go, we knew we made a wrong turn. Something was wrong, not right. But here, God is turning his people around. And no doubt the Israelites saw, thought, Yahweh, are you lost? No, he's not lost. He's purposeful. He's up to something. In chapter 14, verse 3, God says, Pharaoh will say to his people, they're wandering in the land. They're shut in. The Israelites felt lost and trapped. Pharaoh assumed that they were lost and trapped, but it was really part of God's passionate plan for his people. Now, let's, let's tack to the right a little bit here. Of all the things in all of creation, what is God most passionate about? Is God most passionate about puppies and kittens? Is God most passionate about the Grand Canyon or Victoria Falls? Is God most passionate about human beings made in his image? Well, know this. God does enjoy his creation. But his greatest passion lies elsewhere. And chances are, unless you're a mature Christian, you're going to have issues with what I'm about to say. What is God's greatest passion? God's greatest passion is himself. His greatest passion is his own glory. And it's a good thing. Now, before I explain why it's a good thing, let's see that in our passage. Verse 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory. Then in verse 17, further down, we see, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go forth in after them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, that I'm Yahweh, your God, when, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh. We see God's passion for all his glory all over the Bible. For instance, Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty six. He writes, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. My friends, the reason why the universe exists, the reason why there are shooting stars, the reason why he made man in his image, the reason why God does anything and everything is for his glory. God's greatest passion is for his name that it would be glorified forever and ever. But this rubs us wrong. See, when we see a person who's self-absorbed, we recoil, don't we? And rightly so. But remember, there's an important distinction. You guys ready? You guys ready? 
you are not God. (laughs) And so when we seek our own glory above all else, it truly is a moral wrong. But when God seeks his own glory above all else, it really is a moral good. Take a minute to think this through. And if you want to study more on it, uh, John Piper, Desiring God, Sam Storms has a book, Jonathan Edwards, pretty much everything he writes. Think this through. If God does not delight in his own glorious goodness, then there must be some other good greater than God, more worthy of his passionate attention. Right? But there is no other thing in creation that is a greater good. And so think about this. If God does not delight above all else in his own goodness, then he himself is flawed. Right? So God is right to be passionate for his own glory above all else. Here's what John Piper writes. He says, God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue. For there is only one supremely beautiful being in the universe. There is only one all-satisfying person in the universe. And because of his supreme beauty and greatness, what the psalmist says in Psalm 16, verse 1 is true. Quote, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. End quote. Piper goes on to say, if God hides that or denies that, He might seem humble, but he would be hiding from us the very thing that would make us completely happy forever. In other words, God himself is the greatest good in the universe, and in him is fullness of joy and delight, not just for him, but for his creatures. Therefore, if God is not passionate about making his glory known to us, then he would be hiding what is good for us from us. Follow the logic there. Let me illustrate it this way. Say you're, um, I like clocks. Uh, Say you're in antique clock shopping, and you go into this well-known proprietor to see his best clocks, and you tell him money is no object, all right? That's always fun to be able to say that. (laughs) Money is no object. Be careful. All right. And he brings out some wonderful, splendid, mid-18th century clocks and all around $20,000, $25,000 price range. And, and you find the best one, and you make an offer. And, but then you see something in the back room. Sitting on a shelf is an original Duck d'Orleans sympathetic clock. Google that one, D-U-C, d'Orleans sympathetic clock. Some say it's the best, most glorious clock ever made. It's valued at around $7 million. It's a pretty clock. You should look it up. Now, would you not feel like something was wrong with the shopkeeper for withholding the clock? At least not even letting you see it? The same would be true of God if he were to hide the greatest good from us. And he would not be a good God. Does this make sense? God must be passionate about his glory above all else or he's a liar or a fraud. And God must be passionate about making his glory known to his creatures or he really isn't good to us. 
When God invites us to worship him, he's inviting us to greatness, to behold something worthy and and beyond belief and to, to find our hope and our joy in him. And back to our passage. What we'll see is that there are two ways you can experience God's glory, for good or for ill, in deliverance or in judgment. God had Israel backed into a corner on purpose. God's taking them on the long way and having them backtrack into a no-win situation on purpose. Israel will witness God's glory in his deliverance of them. There will be no way that people can say, well, we had our hand in this. Salvation is all of the Lord's. He will get the glory, and rightly so. My friends, there's times in your lives where God has you seemingly backed into a corner so that you would cry out to him for his glory to be displayed in your life. So you would no longer forget his supreme goodness and your utter dependence upon him. And it's a good thing that God does this to you. It's a good thing to be led on the long route for God's glory. So the Israelites, they're exactly where they need to be in order to experience God's glorious deliverance, but they don't feel that way. And the Egyptians are right where they need to be for God to bring his glorious justice to bear upon them. And understand this. In God's justice, his glory will be seen. You know, in our society today, it seems like most people reject the idea that God judges people for how they live their lives here in the present. My God would never judge anyone, they say, nor punish them, they say. They seem to be teaching God a lesson and what's right and wrong. And so many cannot even fathom how God's glory is on display when he judges Pharaoh. But God's justice does bring his glory. Let me illustrate. A few weeks back, a man named Cesar Sayak Jr., I guess I'm pronouncing that right, sent a dozen pipe bombs to Democratic leaders throughout our nation. Let me ask you, what is your desire for our justice system? Is it not to bring the perpetrator to justice? What kind of society would we be in if if we were not passionate about bringing criminals to justice? What if you find out that the judge, in hearing this case, hearing all the evidence, and even hearing the man confess, what if the judge just let him go? Would you rejoice? No, I don't think so. Would you glory in the judge and proclaim his goodness? No, something's wrong with that judge. But if the man was guilty and the judge issued a guilty verdict and sentenced the man to appropriate sentence, would you not rejoice? Would you not ascribe goodness to the judge, at least in that one case? Wouldn't you say it was the right thing for him to do to mete out justice? You would be glad, right? Now, why is it that people do the exact opposite with God? People demand that God cannot be a God of justice. My friends, to think this way is to think illogically. It goes against everything you hope in. 
our criminal justice system can't get it all right. We can't lock up every person who's a criminal. We can't even find them all, bring them to justice. But God has promised a day when everybody will be judged for what he or she's done in the body. And that's a good thing. It's actually a glorious thing. God would not be glorious nor good if he did not bring Pharaoh to justice. And so know this, because God is passionate about his glory, he must and will judge all who oppose him. God is passionate for his glory. We need to remember this. Why? Because we can find ourselves like the Israelites with our backs against the Red Sea, so to speak. We can feel hemmed in and that God has let us down. But this story reminds us that God is more passionate about his glory being manifest in your life than in your comfort. And if somebody's doing evil to you, though you may not be able to extract justice in this day and age, there will be a day when perfect justice is meted out. You can be sure of that. And knowing that allows you to forgive. Because justice is not in your hands, it's in the Lord's hands. I think somebody said that. Maybe Paul. Yeah, I think I'm right. Take, for instance, Christ's call for you to be a peacemaker. It is really hard to make peace. Peace just doesn't happen, right? It's easier to ignore the situation. To be a peacemaker requires humility and sacrifice. It causes you to totally depend upon Christ, to give you the heart that you need and the words that you can say. Now know this. God is glorified in you when you take the long route to make peace. Listen, you can never be more like Jesus than when you work to make peace with those who want no peace. So far, we've seen that no matter what befalls us, we must remember that the Lord is faithful to keep his promise and that the Lord is passionate for his glory. Now let's see that we must remember that the Lord is merciful. We must remember that the Lord is merciful. So the nation of Israel finds itself in a real troubling situation. They're walled in by the Egyptian army on one side and the Red Sea on the other. And they're forgetting that it's the Lord that brought them there in the first place. They cry out to the Lord. They complain to Moses. But then Moses, acting as a mediator between God and his people, says these amazing words that we read in verse 13 and 14. Look there, chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work out for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses' strategy seems unorthodox. Stand firm, be silent. At the outset of World War II, the British government issued a poster meant to boost morale among the British citizenry. It's a, it's a deep, rich red poster. At the top, it's got the, the crown of the kingdom. And then below it, it has these words. Keep calm and carry on. 
Now today we've seen a lot of bumper stickers and t-shirts that kind of parody that, don't we? Things that say things like, keep calm and drink coffee. (laughs) Keep calm and pretend you're at the beach. Just not today, Southampton. Well, here's a good one. Keep calm and call mom. (laughs) Imagine if Moses was handing out t-shirts that day, they would read something like, keep calm and stand firm. Be silent. Here comes the merciful salvation of the Lord. Stand firm. The Lord will fight for you. You don't have to lift a finger. Watch out. Here it comes. His free salvation. All orchestrated by him. In verse 19 of chapter 14, God begins to move. An angel of God moved from the front of the formation to behind. He positioned himself between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And and the smoke and the clouds caused confusion. Like like in war today, they throw smoke grenades so that you you can escape or you can hide yourself behind them. Then Moses does as God commanded him. In verse 21, he stretched out his hands. And the sea dried up before them. In this amazing miracle of God, the Israelites walked on dry ground uh, between the walls of water on their left and on their right. And the Egyptians pursued. And they began to panic as their chariot wheels got clogged. And right before their demise, what God had promised way back in the beginning of the book of Exodus, the Egyptians cry out, Yahweh fights for them against us. They had come to know the name of the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, the one who fights for his people, just as God said they would. But they come too late, and they don't come in a saving way. They experience the name of the Lord in his glory as they are being brought to justice. Now contrast the Egyptians' experience with that of Israel, starting in verse 28. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that they had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptian dead on the shore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that they feared the Lord. This is, this is not a cowering fear. It's, a, it's an awe that we're supposed to have before the Lord. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? It makes sense. They feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What I want us to see as we wrap up here is, is that this same body of water was for the Egyptians a place of judgment and for the Israelites a place of salvation. Think about it. Justice and mercy come to the people through the same act of God. Does this not point us to the cross of Christ? In the Red Sea, God's justice and mercy met. On the cross of Christ, God's mercy and his justice met. Understand this. This is why the cross is so glorious. On the cross, every sin committed, even the ones that go uncaught, go unpunished, all of them are brought to justice by God in his power. No cruel word said in anger, no selfish hoarding of wealth, no abuse of power will slip by God unnoticed. Our earthly courts may fail us, but our heavenly courts will not. On the cross, 
Perfect justice is meted out. Now the same cross that displays the glory of God's justice displays the glory of his mercy and grace. I think the problem people have with God being a God of justice and that he will judge all people is what we don't like about it is we, we hope he judges other people, but then we come to realize we're no better than the rest. And if God really is a judging God, there's things in my closet that I'll be judged for. Not just the things that I did. There'd be probably plenty of good things that we've all done that we can pat ourselves on the back for. But think of all the things you know you should have done and you didn't. All the good you could have done, but you didn't. Why? Because you're more concerned about your own glory. I'm more concerned about my own glory than I am about God's glory. That's what it means to be a sinner. You live life in God's creation as if the creator doesn't exist. None of us are guilt-free. All of us are deserving God's justice. Yet by the cross, in the cross alone, we may experience God's mercy instead. Ponder that. In mercy, God places our sin on Christ if we would but believe in him. And so if you trust in Christ on the day of judgment to come, the waters of justice will not come down on you. You will walk on dry ground into that eternal joy that's waiting for you. You see, the story we just read is, is, is in Exodus is a picture of what happens to us in salvation. Christ's work on the cross is God saying, be still, be silent. The Lord will fight for you. Christ has fought. He's won the battle over sin for us. And so the story of the nation of Israel passing through the Red Sea reminds us of God's grace. Their salvation had nothing to do with anything they did. And if we think that somehow they were better people than the nations around them, they were not. You keep reading through scriptures, you'll see at times the nation of Israel behaved worse than their neighbors. What's the difference between Israel and their neighbors? God's mercy has come upon them. It was nothing that they did. Christian, what makes you different than an unbeliever around you who's lost in this world? Nothing really other than the fact that God's mercy has come upon you. It's all of his grace. Be silent. Let me save you. You don't have to lift a finger. All you got to do is believe. If you have peace with God, it's all his work for you. You add nothing to it. That's what makes Christianity different than all the other religions. All other religions require pilgrimages or almsgiving or praying certain, uh, five times a day. And then because of your work, you're saved. You bring yourself through the Red Sea. But in Christianity, God does the work from beginning to end. Why? Because we cannot. So if you've embraced Christ, he takes you through the water of judgment to the other side. Now, one last point of application. We can forget this as Christians. We can, we can forget that not only are we saved by grace, but we live by grace. We see each day areas in which we fall short. And we'll make excuses for it, or we'll feel guilty, and we'll just pick up God's law and try harder to be a good Christian that day. I'll do it next day. Just watch me. But that's not living According to the gospel, it's not a resting in God's grace. 
picking up the law to be a good Christian. Instead of picking up the law and redoubling our efforts, maybe instead, what? Remember the cross. Maybe remember that all of our sins have been carried by Christ and we now stand in grace. We, we are just called to stand firm and be silent. Christ has fought for you. The battle over sin is won by Christ for you. Now, do you see why this story in the Bible is repeated time and time again? Sometimes as God rebukes his people, sometimes as God's people just sing for joy of what God has done in his deliverance. This Throughout the entire Bible, even in the New Testament, this story is repeatedly told to remind God's people of what he did for them as he parted the Red Sea and saved them. Now, today, may we be a people who forget not the Lord. May we daily look to the cross and remember that the Lord is faithful, that the Lord is passionate, that the Lord is merciful. And it's all for his glory. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are the ultimate good. There is nothing more glorious than you. Thank you for reminding us of that. You were good to do so. You wouldn't be a good God if you didn't display your glory to us and call us to find our hope in it. May you fill us with your grace today. May we, may we just be still and know that the battle's been fought, that your mercy is ours forever and ever, and that nothing can take it away. That's how good you are. And may we praise you for your glory. Amen.